my wife, Tamia, she grew up a part of gospel choirs, um, and uh, she's actually got quite an impressive resume. She's toured throughout the United States with, with different choirs, and she has uh, been directed by some Toronto giants like Lisa Toussaint and Karen Burke, Corey Butler, Melissa Davis, Jeremiah Sparks, and, and now Paritha. So she's got quite the resume, she's got quite the experience, and she's taught me a whole lot of things that I never knew about gospel choirs before I married her. And so here are some of the things that I've learned. It's a form of music that has a rich history that's evolved over two centuries. So we all know gospel music, but underneath this umbrella are all of these different subcategories or subgenres that have, uh, that have existed um, and, and uh, are present at these pivotal points of time as the music has come to, uh, to what we know it now. So as Bashar was talking about earlier, the music goes as far back to the fields and plantations in which enslaved people would have worked. These would be songs that they would sing just for fun, and these would be called work songs. And over time, these songs became uh, a form of communication about their lived experience, their struggle as an enslaved people. But attached to that is the assured hope that they have for deliverance. And these were called spirituals. The songs then began to communicate escape plans and escape routes. Hey, we're going to be leaving at this time, at this hour. This is where you need to be. This is what you need to bring. Some actually believe that the music goes even as far back as the slave ships that, slaves, uh, that Africans were transported on. That song, that hymn that we know so well, Amazing Grace, it's believed that John Newton got the tune of the song from the Africans that were humming collectively on, on, their, uh, on their voyage. So there's a lot of, of roots of history to this genre of music. But one of my favorite things that Tamia has taught me about gospel choirs is their oneness, their togetherness. When a gospel choir sound is produced well, it's through the achievement of this oneness. In order for a choir to sound cohesive, each member must be attuned to the voices of those around them. Their voices are meant to blend with one another, creating this full and enriching, harmonious sound that we melt in our seats listening to or jump up to our feet dancing to. The gospel choir creates a sense of community and it creates a sense of togetherness. Tamia even was telling me about how some gospel choirs will rehearse without sheet music or lyrics, which I just think is crazy. But they do this, or the, the, the way they're able to do this is by listening to each other and by following the direction of their musical conductor. We're going to be touching on this, this sense of oneness at a couple different points in the message. But it's important for us to know that the gospel choir it did originate in the black community, which we're going to define a little bit later. And it's prevalent in our society and culture today. And I wonder what our connection to and our understanding of faith would look like without contributions from this community. I wonder what our faith and understanding of our faith would look like without the contributions of the vast array of cultures and communities that are represented in this congregation right now. So we're going to be looking to God's word to inform our understanding of, of this and, and to give us cause to celebrate the diversity and, the, and, and uh, the, the diversity that exists here and the identity that is to be found, that is, that is freedom-giving in Christ. So we know that ethnicity, culture, heritage, these things come from God. But there's this little thing that has come in and, and warped things. We've, we've begun to identify ourselves based on this, this thing called race. Let's talk just very briefly about what this is. 
race is the sectioning of people groups by nature of their complexion or physical characteristics and features. Dante, where do these physical variations come from? Well, it comes from molecules that exist in each of our bodies. The abundance of these molecules and the level to which they affect our outward appearance, they vary. Does anyone know what this is called? Melanin. It's called melanin. We all have it. And the production of melanin in our bodies will determine the darkness of our eyes, our hair, and yes, our skin. This is important. One of the factors which contribute to the level of melanin your body produces is the amount of exposure that your ancestors had to the sun. So what does this mean? It means that the color of our skin is purely genetic. It has no basis for how we interact with one another. It's not something that is meant to divide us. Our body's production of melanin is no different than all the other proteins and substances we produce at different rates and different quantities. I mean, we don't group ourselves and identify ourselves based on how much sweat we produce. That would be sweat cyst. (laughs) When we identify race, we identify that which makes us look different. And when we take it a step further and attach developed preconceived, and, and it is developed because none of these things are innate in us. When we take these developed preconceived notions or assumptions about an individual based on the color of their skin, what we've just identified as part of a biological makeup, then we run into this problem of racism. It's not a problem that's specific to Western culture and nor is it specific to our present day. All throughout history, this, this false concept has risen up malice in hearts and it's torn apart communities. We can't deny its impact because it's far from imaginary. And unfortunately, it's something that has invaded the church. Richard Baxter was a 17th century theologian and he was a church leader. And on the topic of slavery, he said this, make it your chief end in buying and using slaves to win them to Christ and save their souls. Let their salvation be far more valued by you than their service. Now, part of the sentiment here is really, really good. We want, we want to value every individual and prioritize their salvation before we we concern ourselves with their works and the things that they do. We might even say that this is part of the saved by faith and not by works theology. But the issue here is that Baxter did not oppose or challenge the enslavement of African people. Rather, he encouraged it because he said it's helping them. For some, the enslavement of black people was actually a form of ministry, and it was done under the guise of evangelism. And so what we're seeing here is this tension between motive and method. And the motive, as we see here, is really good. It's something that as Christians, we also have. We want to see the power of Christ in people. We want to see the Holy Spirit transform lives. We want to see people living according to God's word. But when our method is twisted, then we inhibit the ability to share Christ with others. And if we view ourselves as better than another based on outward features, then we've devalued the people that we're trying to minister to. So this is a false concept that cannot permeate our psyche and color the way in which we image bearers, the bearers of God around us. Now, I know that as I say some of these things, there, there are people here who have different lived experience, who hold different convictions. 
who have a very, very painful relationship with this thing that we're identifying here is race. And I want to honor that as legitimate and it's right. And what I implore you to do is to bear yourself before God, to give your heart to him and to do so in a Psalm-like fashion because he can take everything that we have to give. And in doing so, I hope that that you will receive the grace that is so abundant and boundless from our Heavenly Father that you would be able to extend that to others. What is real, what is God-given, are the ethnicity groups we belong to, the cultural backgrounds that we come from. And what we end up doing is diluting the riches to be discovered by God through the gift of diversity when we get caught up in race alone. If we only say black, if we only say white, we rob ourselves of the wisdom and edification to be gained through the diaspora of these racial groups. There are several people in this congregation who share my complexion. We all come from different places, though. I'm Canadian. All four of my grandparents immigrated from Barbados in the 60s. There are people here that that represent Haiti and Nigeria, Jamaica. If you were to put all of these people up here on the stage and to ask them to talk about their heritage, we would be hearing about different foods. We would be hearing about different music, different traditions. And this is the cultural diversity that we ought to be excited about. So let's spend some time talking about it. Galatians 3, verse 23 to 29. Thank you again, Sebastian, for reading that for us. Let's look at the context, what's happening here. The Galatians at the time were disputing over the place of the law in our spiritual development. Paul had once come to Galatia, and he'd shared the good news of Christ, and, and people came to follow him. But when Paul left, they started to get into these debates about circumcision, They've started to talk about what food is unclean and what's clean. What can we eat? When should we all be fasting and doing A, B, C, D, E, F, G? And this is what Paul challenges them with in Galatians 3, verse 2 to 5. I would like to learn just one thing from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by believing what you heard? After beginning by means of the Spirit, are you now trying to finish? by means of the flesh? Have you experienced so much in vain, if it really was in vain? So again I ask, does God give you his spirit and work miracles among you by the works of the law or by believing what you heard? What Paul's getting at here is that their salvation was achieved through their faith in Jesus and what Jesus Christ accomplished on the cross. This was the only requisite There was no need for them to be circumcised. There was no need for them to stay away from any food deemed unclean. There uh, there was no requirement, rather, for them to fast at certain times of the year or on certain occasions. Paul insists that we're justified by our faith and not the law or any particular custom or ritual. When we get to Galatians 3, verse 28, there is no Jew nor Gentile neither slave nor free, no male or female, for all are one in Christ Jesus. Paul is saying that that which makes us different from one another, our heritage, our status in society, our sex, our age, etc. These things don't cease to exist. But rather, through Christ, these distinctions 
have not excluded us from receiving the gift of grace and love from our Heavenly Father. Through Christ, we're one, despite that which makes us different. And that, in fact, is the way that God intended from the beginning. If we look at Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3, we see that what Jesus accomplished on the cross was planned by God at the start. Genesis 12, verse 1 to 3 says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So through Abraham, God intended for all people, that's all of us, to be of one faith, one faith in Christ. But the ultimate goal here was not for us to be a, a culturally assimilated group of people. Universally, his salvific work is done in our hearts and minds as we become more like him. We see this in Ephesians 4, verse 22 to 24, where Paul says, You were taught with regard to your former way of life to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds, and to put on a new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. That's what's happening in each of our hearts when we accept Christ as our Savior. But where we live, where we are, our particular context, God will do that work in our hearts and inform our faith practice and, exp- and our, our faith expression in those contexts. Walter R. Strickland II, he says this about the Christian's understanding of God. God, not context, has ultimate authority. And yet wisdom, which Strickland early on in his uh, argument says wisdom is from God, yet wisdom demands understanding the context in which Christians live and God works. Christians need Christians from different cultural, historical, and socioeconomic contexts to develop wisdom. And why is this? It's because God will reveal his character to us through the various testimony and lived experiences of those who are different from ourselves. This work is done in our hearts through the Spirit, and it's paired with, it's paired with, with our diligent study of God's work. And that is what leads us to live appropriately, to live according to God's word in whatever context that we live in. When confronted on circumcision and adherence to the law of Moses, Peter, James, Paul, and Barnabas argued that salvation is freely given through faith alone. We see this in Acts 15, verse 8 to 11, when Peter says, God who knows the heart showed that he accepted them, them being the Gentiles, by giving the Holy Spirit to them just as he did to us, us being the Jews. He did not discriminate between the Jews and the Gentiles, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through the grace of our Lord Jesus that we are saved, just as they are. So the conduct in which we adhere to the way in which we live and speak, that's clearly outlined in Scripture, and it's for us to learn. It's for us to know. It's for us to be informed by. But we, the Gentiles, have not been called to adjust our customs or modes of worship in order to mirror or reflect Jewish or any other culture's practices. 
Psalm 150 is a, is a psalm that I know all of us know well. It's the echo and essence of the entire Psalter, the mode of existence that we strive to uphold. It's a proclamation of praise and an invitation to do so with everything you have. Verses 3 to 5 say, Praise him with the sounding of the trumpet. Praise him with the harp and lyre. Praise him with timbrel and dancing. Praise him with the strings and pipe. Praise him with the clash of cymbals. Praise him with resounding cymbals. Church, when was the last time that we had a harp and lyre up here? And when I say lyre, it's not an invitation for you to look at the person next to you and harp on them. (laughs) Thank you. I'm practicing my dad jokes. Um, It's not an invitation to do that, right? God doesn't look at our piano, our guitars, and our drums and say, hey, where are the harps and lyres? Where are the timbrels? No, he accepts that. He welcomes what we have because in this context, in the GTA, whatever church you go into, you're likely going to see these things up here. And that's what's appropriate for us. That is how we authentically give our praise to God. Just a few weeks ago, a month ago actually now, the the senior highs were reflecting on Jeremiah 29. For the worship of false idols, the Israelites were exiled to Babylon for 70 years. But in their exile, God presents them with this interesting command. He says this, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry. Have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number there. Do not decrease. Also, seek the peace and prosperity of the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it. Because if it prospers, you too will prosper. So the Israelites, they were still under the law. They were still subject to it. But God had given them the freedom to live according to the ways of those who occupied the land they were being exiled into. Matthew Henry, he says it like this. While the king of Babylon protected the Israelites, they lived quietly and they lived peaceable lives under the king. And they did so in all godliness In all honesty, they did so according to how God would lead them to, in righteousness. And they patiently left it to God to work deliverance for them in due time. The junior highs had an opportunity to reflect on this as well. And what stuck out to them was verse 13. You will find me when you seek me with all of your heart. And what came out of this discussion was powerful. We got to talking about the different ways each of us talked to God. And the conversation shifted to the different ways God talks to us. And what we learned is that God is a God of diverse communication. He interacts with each of us differently. So it would only make sense that he welcomes diverse expression of faith as we worship him. By the new covenant of Christ, we're not bound to any law, custom, or tradition. We're bound to our faith. The gospel of Christ makes it so that we may practice our worship according to our cultural contexts. Here's the stipulation. As long as it doesn't lead us into sin. So our identity can't be so wrapped up in our heritage that when our faith confronts it, we end up making compromises. When I was 11 years old, I was called the N-word for the first time. And I realized that for many, that's actually kind of old, that you would have heard that word directed your way much younger. For that, I'm sorry. My world was shook. 
And I started to wrestle with who I am and how I'm perceived by those around me. And I wrestled with this for a long time. I I didn't make peace until I was 21 or 22. In that time, there were two other instances where people who did not share my complexion had used that word in my direction. And I didn't challenge it. I didn't say anything. Rather, I, I, I maintained a anger in my heart and disdain. I allowed it to eat at me and continue to affect the way in which I interacted with those who were different from me. So when 2020 rolled around and we were seeing these, these riots and these protests, I too was angry. I was seeing posts from people of my shared faith community that that were really difficult for me to digest. And the reason why was because I had this opinion, which I still hold, that there are undeniable challenges that exist for people who look like me. And the vehement denial of that being true felt like a denial of my lived experience as a black man. And what it did was it injured the hope that I had to close the margins where I and others have been set apart for so long. But it was someone from this church who challenged me. He simply asked Dante, is your primary identity found in Christ or in the color of your skin? And once I had time to process this, to understand it, I realized that there's freedom to be found from all of those hurt feelings that I had harbored for so long. That in him, I can have peace. I can hang out with those that are different from me and not be resentful. I had to separate myself from who the world told me I was and discover who I actually was in the God who created me. I'm still black, (laughs) but it doesn't define who I am. Imago Dei, Genesis 1 verse 27, God created man in his own image. In his image, in the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. Brothers and sisters, we all bear the image of God. We've all been designed in his perfect image for his perfect purpose. And this is regardless of what we look like or where we come from. So with all of these things being said, let's go back to the beginning of this message and define what the black community is. The black community is tied to the horrific legacy of slavery in North America. But even greater, it's tied to the hard-fought freedom that they achieved. What's the black church? The black church is both of these things but deeply ingrained in their institution is the legacy of steadfast and unwavering faith in the God who always delivers. Now, this is what happens when the black people tied to this legacy first identify with Christ. In their cultural expression of faith, they bring glory onto the name of God, and they do so through achieved oneness of mind and body. There's this strong sense of communal edification in these cultural contexts, And this is because once upon a time, church was all that they had. And so on a Sunday morning, they wouldn't go to church just to hang out and kick it. 
Rather, they would go to celebrate, celebrate another week that they are alive. Another week in which they can hope for that future of freedom. If not for me, for my children, if not for my children, for my grandchildren. Going to church was about togetherness. It was about community. And in this Western context, we find ourselves worshiping differently. It's not wrong. But we find ourselves being mentally stimulated. We find ourselves being personally edified by the presentation of God's work. But the people in the black culture have a more fully embodied and communal response to preaching. It's why you're going to see hands raised up in the air. You're going to hear uh, resounding amens when the pastor says something they like. The service, thank you. The services are going to go a long, 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 long time. And everyone leaves sweaty. It's because the church, it is about the glorification. It's about the thanksgiving of the God who delivers. That's what the black church is grounded in. Reverend Charlie Dates is a a preacher in the States, and he talks about the exuberance of speakers from this community. We all know that the gospel is good news. It's news that we want to share. It's news that is cause for great joy, and so we proclaim it in such a manner. He says that ministers in the black church, they do this well. He connects it to Aristotle's rhetoric triangle. Ethos, the credibility of the speaker, their authority, Logos, the word from which the speaker works, the, the, the speaker's ability to appeal to reason. And pathos, the speaker's connectedness to emotion and how it evokes emotion in those who are listening. These three attributes, Aristotle would say, they make for persuasive teaching. And this oneness that's established of these three attributes, the oneness that is established and, and celebrated and, and present in the black church is cause for celebration. And it's an exciting thing. It's something that informs how we experience our faith today. And we got a sense of that in the gospel choir this morning, and we're going to continue that in just a few moments. We're part of a church, a city, and a country where there's this melting pot of cultural backgrounds and heritage. It's right here. And we get to learn from one another. We get a more expansive view of the loving God that we serve just by being in presence with one another and speaking with one another and learning from one another. Our ethnic diversity, it is by God's design and it's for his glory. Let's pray. Our creator, our deliverer, our foundation, you're all of these things and infinitely more. We give you thanks for your faithfulness in all circumstances And for your deliverance from all that would inhibit us from knowing you and being in relationship with you. It's through you that we have cause for exuberant joy and unshakable hope. Father, give us teachable spirits that we would be filled with your wisdom, that we would be prepared for your guidance along the paths that you've set before us. Lord, we praise you with our entire being that you might be blessed by us. So now surrendering all that we have and all that we are for your glory and your glory alone, we pray this prayer in Jesus' name.
Amen.